You are listening to the PhD Pod, the podcast from UCAPS, the PhD Association of the University of Copenhagen. We bring the people behind the science to the foreground. Hello and welcome everybody to this week's PhD Pod episode. My name is Johanna and with me in the studio today is Sebastian. Hello. And our guest today is Tessa. Hi. To get us started in... About one minute, what is it that you're working on, Tessa? Yeah, so um, my name is uh, Tessa Canoa, and I uh, work at the Department of Food Science at KU. And uh, I do my PhD, and uh, I improve the quality of uh, plant-based foods through fermentation. So we use either bacteria or fungi to develop more nutritious and more, more tasty and food with better texture. And um, yeah, I focus on the... Uh, Protein quality, so we want to increase the amino acid content of foods. And uh, well, we look into the, the DNA of bacteria and we try to optimize the uh, amino acid concentration by optimizing some fermentation conditions. And yeah, I'm looking forward to talk more about it. Uh, and what will be the second topic we're going to talk about today? Yeah, so we're also going to talk about how to decide upon doing a PhD, like what kind of person do you need to be and more about this decision process when and yeah so, I'm so also much stuff to look forward to <laughs> yes exactly uh super cool so i think uh considering that climate change is becoming a more and more important topic there's a lot of people who are also trying to reduce their co2 footprint in their life and i think um reducing the meat consumption is something that's becoming more popular in general which has also increase the intention uh, the attention for alternative meat products and um, what was your personal motivation of like getting into this topic how how come that you decided to work on alternative proteins yeah so i've been into food science and uh, yeah already for a long time like interested in 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 to develop more tasty food and and in cooking so both personally and and more academically and uh, then particularly at the at the question how can we develop more sustainable foods and that quickly drove me towards uh, yeah finding meat alternatives because reducing your meat consumption is one of the best ways to eat more sustainably one question that i wanted to ask you about this was also what the biggest challenges are in creating a good meat substitutes so I read that uh, currently they, they did a study or something where they asked people what is actually the problem with current meat alternatives or what would it take for you that you would uh, significantly reduce your meat consumption and eat some kind of a plant-based burger instead, let's say. And it seems like the top three challenges or the top three problems that people were pointing out is that the current alternative proteins are lacking moisture flavor and texture i can relate to this i still like meat and exactly these three, three things they turn me down for meat alternatives i'm lacking those so maybe a question to both of you which of these three things is the one the most important one to address in order to get more people to eat uh, alternative proteins and which one of these is the hardest one to crack yeah i think in the end, the most important is flavor. Um, yeah, 
if it doesn't taste good, it's hard to convince anyone to to eat it. Um, and I think maybe shared second is texture and nutrition. Um, so you already talked about this moisture level and texture. I would say they can both fall under the, the category of texture. So meat has some kind of juiciness in it, but it also has a bite. And that combination can be challenging to produce. Um, when we talk about nutrition, that's often people have a lot of ideas about that meat is the most nutritious and that if you eat plant-based and you are not getting a fully uh, nutritious diet. Um, so that's, I think, in the conception of people, that is also really important to to address. I think it's also still a cultural thing for many people that meat is luxury, right? If you want to present something nice to your guests, you have a proper slab of meat and then you show that you are wealthy and well off. Yeah, I would say that was first really the case, but now it has become so normal. I mean, it's still a, a status symbol, um, but people are used to eating meat every day. That it's, I would say, it's not a luxury anymore, but it is. Um, it's it's it has become normalized. So, if there's there isn't meat, then it's abnormal somehow. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And in your PhD, you're specifically addressing the taste challenge, if I'm correct. Um, I'm addressing the nutritional part, okay. um, but in the overall project, we also look at taste and, and texture because, yeah, the combination of, of all of them is important in, in creating nice meat alternatives. So. so nutritional part, that means that you're trying to create meat alternatives that have very good features in a way to be healthy to eat. Is that correct? Or how can one understand that? Yeah, so... I mean, there are many aspects regarding nutrition. You can think about not to have too much sugar or low salt concentration or enough vitamins and minerals. But I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, the protein quality. So that is the amino acids. Um, we have essential amino acids and we have non-essential amino acids. And essential amino acids, we need them through our, our diet. The non-essential amino acids, we can make them ourselves. But the essential amino acids, we really need them to get them through our food. And plant-based foods, they have, uh, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about legumes or if you're talking about grains. Can you explain legumes for everybody? Yeah, legumes are like chickpeas or beans or uh, lentils. So they're, yeah, this category of, okay. of vegetables. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, that usually have more uh, protein content. So we use them a lot for uh, yeah, for meat alternatives. But if you talk about these different categories of uh, vegetables, then some of them have uh, yeah, some essential amino acids and some of them have other essential amino acids. So if you combine, if you eat a varied diet, uh, you get all the essential amino acids that you need. But for many people, it's it's difficult to have a varied diet so when we create a meat alternative preferably we want to have all essential amino acids in there so that you eat one product you get all the yeah the nutrients that you need so essentially you're trying to look at how can you combine different legumes for example in like one product to create something that has a high nutritional value uh, that could be one way so you could indeed combine different ingredients um, but what we are trying to do is we're trying to get to take one ingredient. Um, we're specifically looking at oat and yellow pea. So oat is then an example of a cereal 
and yellow pea is an example of a legume. And then we're trying to increase the, yeah, we're trying to ensure that the amino acid profile is complete so that we have all the essential amino acids in the concentrations that uh, that we need. And do you mirror what natural meat would have, the concentrations? So um, we're not necessarily mirroring the amount or the distribution, how it is in meat, but we want to have it in sufficient quantity that, uh, yeah, that if you eat, um, yeah, if you eat this on a regular basis that you get enough. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're using fermentation for, is that correct? That is what we're using fermentation for, yes. Um, so what is fermentation actually? I mean, I've had like sauerkraut before or kimchi and I, I do know these are things that are ferment fer fermented. That's a really hard word to pronounce. But uh, from a more scientific view, um, but maybe still high level enough for us to understand, what is fermentation? Yeah, so I could give a very scientific explanation of fermentation, but I, I think it's more interesting to talk about fermentation as um, the magic or the work of microorganisms. And so microorganisms can be bacteria or fungi, uh, multicellular fungi or single cellular fungi for going into the deal. That is, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we talk about um, molds or yeasts. And those microorganisms, they can transform some ingredients in our food towards other organic compounds. Um, and this, this transformation, that's, that's the fermentation. And Johanna, I'm shocked that you didn't name beer. You never had a beer. If I'm correctly informed, that's also fermentation. Beer is also it? fermented, See? yes. Mm. Yeah. Good to know. And actually, if you think about all the, the nice food that we have, all the most delicious food, Yeah, there's a high chance that it's <laughs> going to be fermented. <laughs> so how do you study that then? Like, how do you ferment something and scientifically study the results? Do you just put a couple of uh, fake burgers in the lab, then you add some of your magic enzymes and wait for a while, then eat the burger and be like, okay, this one was better than the last one or worse than the last one. Uh, like, how does a typical day in your research life look like? I would say what you just described, that that could happen more at the product development level or more like in a company or yeah in a restaurant, I would say. Um, but since we're more into the scientific part, we try to understand uh, what happens if we add different microorganisms. So we have different bacteria. I, I focus mainly on, on bacteria. And then we have the same substrate. So we have our peas and then we have all our different bacteria. And then we add them and then we measure, um, for example, the pH. So the types of type of acidity uh, in, in the, how that develops throughout time. And we measure how they grow um, because that also, the microorganisms also have a diet. So they also need specific nutrients. And some of them, they, they don't, do not grow well because they don't have the, the, the right nutrients. So you measure their pH, their growth, and then the outcome the product, then you can also measure the amino acid analysis or their flavor compounds or... Are you allowed to try your own laboratory trials or is this a big no-no? Um, not in the lab that we currently do our research, but we, because, yeah, they're also, they're all kind of organisms that people are working with and, uh, yeah, we don't eat or drink in that lab. 
But we do have a food grade lab. So if you do want to do some tests, some sensory uh, trials where people actually, where you, either you or other people are about to taste your products, then you use a different lab with different equipment and you need to bring in only bacteria or, or fungi that you know that are uh, safe. So you yeah. cannot just quickly grow your lunch when you forgot something? No, too bad. Huh? Shame. Yeah. Mm. But where do you think uh, this will lead? So you're now investigating all of these uh, different fungi and how they um, change the proteins, if I understand it correctly. But like in 10 years, how will the alternative proteins, will they look the same like right now? Like all these like plant-based patties that you can buy in the supermarket or will it look like completely different or what will be the state of plant-based meat in, in 10 years according to your um, forecast? I think we're going to see a lot more variety. Um, both products that really try to mimic the the taste and the, and the texture of meat, but maybe also some products that are a bit different that are vegetable based or legume based but are that are a bit more unfamiliar um maybe you have heard of about tempeh tempeh is also a fermented product from asia correct from yeah from originally from indonesia it's made from soybeans and that is is a traditional fermentation that has not been inspired by meat it's really a product on its own it has its own flavor and texture um and i hope to see both in the future. So things that resemble meat or also fish and, and eggs or all kind of dairy, produ dairy products, for example, but also new innovative products that, yeah, maybe we're not yet familiar with, but that could also be really interesting for us. Apart from the taste and all the physical or, yeah, food scientific uh, parts in this, What else does it need to get a large part of the population to reduce their meat consumption significantly? Do you think it also needs some kind of a societal change or like tax incentives or how can we make this happen if we as a society decide that we want to collectively reduce our CO2 print and maybe because of that also our meat consumption? Yeah, so that is really on the consumer acceptance side. Um, and I think various players have a role in that. Uh, restaurants, by offering those options, uh, by offering at least a vegetarian option, um, and maybe with some, some of these nice innovative products that really people are really excited to choose the vegetarian option, that it doesn't become, yeah, we just leave the meat out and here you have a salad or something like that, but that people are excited about choosing uh, the non-meat option. Uh, Supermarkets by trying by deciding to sell these products and by having you know a, a place for it that that showcases these are interesting products that you can try <laughs> and not hidden in a corner you know um, and also yeah people th themselves uh, in in trying yeah being open for a new experience. Do you think these products will be a luxury product for people that are better off? Or are they designed to be basic food that should have a very low price? Because when I go today in a supermarket, meat substitute costs more than cheap meat. Yeah, and that is a shame, I think. Yeah. Um, I think it's also 
I mean, I'm from the Netherlands, and I think in the Netherlands the the offer is a lot bigger and in general also cheaper when you can well not maybe not cheaper than meat but at least comparable um so i don't think it has to be like that i think here in denmark now yeah the there is a limited amount of products and they're competing a lot with uh well you would say that if they're competing that the price is lower but i think uh now it's still more a luxury thing for people um and it is not the demand maybe is not too high enough to to reduce the price or well i'm not an economist but uh but so yeah. the <laughs> way of producing them is not necessarily more expensive than farming animals no not at all it should be cheaper but of course i mean the initial period needs more investment because uh once you have the product it's it's easy you can yeah just continue producing but yeah all the science that goes into making it making the product properties that yeah that is an investment Do you have like a favorite alternative meat product that you can buy in here in the Danish supermarkets? Like if I were to convince uh, Sebastian that plant-based meat can actually taste good and I would say I it invite him. It taste good. I never said it can't not taste good. <laughs> and I would invite him over for dinner. What product should I buy? Um, I'm really excited about uh, this startup uh, which is called Matter Foods. Um, they started the collaboration with Gasoline Grill. So you can uh, get a plant-based burger there. or either Actually, it's not a plant-based burger, but a fungi-based burger. <laughs> um, Fungis are mushrooms, right? Yeah, well, mushrooms are part of the bigger family of fungi. Okay. But yeah, I think mushrooms is something that people <laughs> have better associations with, with fungi in general yeah. yeah um i think they that burger has a really great taste and texture so well that sounds great i'm definitely gonna try that and i mean we're not sponsored by them just as a disclaimer <laughs> but uh, other burgers are available yeah yeah but thanks i think that was a super uh, great insight in how you're currently approaching the production of good meat substitutes and where this could go and i'm really hopeful also that we will see some exciting new things but also some improved uh, meat-like alternatives in the future and uh, yes thanks for sharing those insights with us thank you Then let's maybe come to a second topic that we wanted to talk about today. And this is like, how do you become a PhD? And you have quite an interesting path behind you because you did many things, many degrees, I feel. Um, and a PhD is the highest education that one formally can achieve. How does one get one? How does one get started on this one? Um, you have a bachelor and two master's degrees. Um, and we want to come to this a little bit later. But every career starts somewhere with, I would assume, a young Tessa that runs around and looks at the world. Um, have you always been interested in science, biotechnology, food technology? Um, I would say that I've always been a curious person. Um, but uh, I definitely I did not know that I wanted to do a PhD from, from a young age uh, onwards. And I... Uh, 
I mean, there's this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? I had uh, various answers depending from day to day, from like really what? random things like becoming a writer. Well, maybe it's a bit still relevant for yeah, a PhD. Um, but also very random obsessions like becoming doing something in marketing, which I n now never <laughs> would uh, imagine myself doing. Um, but yeah, I think that... Uh, I remember when I was a kid, the coolest job ever was garbage collector men. <laughs> I loved the, the, the people that driving around on their beautiful cars. So things can change. Today I'm also doing a PhD education. <laughs> um, were you from a family that was academic? Were your parents on a higher education? Yes. So both my parents have done a PhD and also my, my grandfather on, on one side. Um so there, yeah, I I had maybe already quite a, an image of <laughs> of what it meant to be to do a PhD. So did that influence the way that you choose your career, or did you always know that you wanted to go to university? Um, I I've always wanted to go to university because I I was yeah uh, curious. I wanted to to learn, um, but the the decision to do a PhD uh, came very late. And I think the fact that my parents did a PhD and my grandfather did a PhD, um, I mean, there was some kind of external, um, I wouldn't say pressure, but uh, yeah, expectations. maybe expectations like, oh, it, it could be, you would, you would do uh, well on a PhD. Um, but I didn't let them influence me. At least I, I hope I didn't. I mean, you never know, of course, but I, yeah. I've always thought, okay, if I won't do a PhD, it's for myself and it's not for all the other people that are have expectations of me. So with this goal of going to university, were you, were you good in school? Yeah, I, I was good in school. And I, I would say I was also, uh, I didn't have one particular uh, subject that I was good in, but I, I liked all the subjects. Yeah. And now you ended up in food technology, um, was this already something you could see or feel that early or did it come later? Um, I've always been interested in cooking. So I really enjoyed cooking with my father. My father is a really good cook. And uh, yeah, I always wanted to go with him with groceries and deciding which ingredients we would buy and I would read the labels. So this is something I've always been interested in. But it's only at the end of high school that I discovered that this was actually something you could study um, at the university. Um, and before I was thinking of more traditional fields like medicine or, yeah. So this curiosity in food led you to choose your topic. And um, you did your bachelor's at the Wageningen University in the Netherlands. What was the decision to go there? Yeah, that's correct. Um, the decision was in that sense quite easy. That is the only place to study food technology in the Netherlands at the, at the university. Um, and Wageningen universities really specialize in yeah, more specific things related to food science, agriculture and environmental science. So, And did you transition directly from school to university? Because many people, they do a gap year, they work, they do volunteering. Did you go directly from school to university? Yeah, I immediately did my, my bachelor. Um, I did do a gap year between my bachelor and my master. What did you do there? In my gap year? Yes. Um I actually had half a gap year, so I did a half year extra on top of my bachelor where I did an exchange in Switzerland, in Zurich. And that, uh, then I went traveling for half a year, which was amazing. Where? 
Um, I spent two months in Italy and uh, two or three months in Southeast Asia. So the classical places where the food is, go food is good. Yeah, I mean, the food was one reason to go to Italy, of course. So did you <laughs> learn something in this half year out of your education that you today can use in your PhD? Um, I, I don't think of something specific, but I mean, it brought me a lot of yeah life experience and good memories and, of course, also a lot of good food experiences. Um <laughs> but maybe not something specific for <laughs> related to the PhD topic. Yeah. And then afterwards, when you, like after your gap year, you went on to not only do one master, but two masters. How come that you ended up like, yeah, going for two right away? Yeah, so that was not something I had planned, <laughs> but I started uh, with one master, which was focused on uh, food law. And what attracted me in food law is that there's a bit combination of well legal science and more uh, knowledge on the on food technology. So I I've always been interested also in more in social science, and I thought oh that could be really interesting to combine. And I really liked the topic, but during my master thesis I started to miss again the more more technical sides of of food technology. Um, and I started baking sourdough breads uh, at home and I was again... It was my action during the first part of Corona. Like I did so much sourdough bread. Yeah, I think that was a, a hobby of many people during Classic. Corona. Um, but yeah, when I uh, had a lot of time, I started making sourdough bread and I realized how much I enjoyed fermentation. I started doing a lot of fermentation experiments at, at home. Uh, like making, what, for example? Making kimchi. Yeah, uh, or sauerkraut or uh, yogurt, and uh, nice. yeah, did they always work out right away? Because I've also experimented with some of these things at home, but maybe that's the reason that I'm not a food technologist <laughs> because for me it n not always worked out very well. I have to admit. <laughs> oh, I also have plenty of experiments that fail, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, one thing that is important is to work as clean as possible and to sterilize your materials um and uh yeah that's a good so advice i guess at least for me yeah so you did your bachelor did your master at what point were you thinking for the first time very specifically oh i should continue this i'm not done after my master's i want to continue my phd um i think it started more at the end of my second master so i did i decided oh, i really want to do with this uh, something with this fermentation topic what made you think about this what started this idea i want to continue for doing a phd then mm -hmm. um i really enjoyed my my master thesis project uh, which was on alternative proteins not on meat but on um yeah plant-based dairy so i was uh, trying to create a plant-based cheese and i had done thesis project before but yeah this time it was different i was very excited about the project and i i was Even when I was done, I was like, oh, I could I could continue with this for another years. Oh, wow, that's impressive. I feel like not a lot of people feel like this at the end of their master thesis. Yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, it was also a relief of of, of having it done and, and submitting and, you know, but I, I was really excited about the topic and I, yeah, I enjoyed 
doing that research. Yeah. And then at some point you made this decision, okay, I want to do a PhD, and then what now? Because today you are a PhD, but you changed university, you changed even the country that you study in. So how was this process of getting a PhD position? Yeah, so for me it was not really that I decided I want to do a PhD. It was more specific than that. It was, um, I want to do a PhD if it is the right topic, if it has, if it motivates me, if I, yeah, in within the plant-based, uh, yeah, plant-based fermentation, it had to be around that topic. Um, and I want to have a good feeling with uh, the future supervisor and the work environment. And thirdly, I, I want, would like to have a salary that I can live on, which is also not the case in, in all countries. And you came to Copenhagen University, so thanks for the compliment on this one, because <laughs> it seems that they could offer all these things. Um, did you know any of the people that you're today working with before you started your PhD here? Uh, no, I, I didn't know anyone. Um, I did meet uh, a former, uh, yeah, a student from Wageningen University here that was suddenly in the, in the same department. But that was more of a coincidence. Yeah. But so you just found the position by Googling PhD alternative proteins fermentation. Um, I started looking at universities that were doing research in those areas, that were doing research that had a food science department and that were doing research on fermentation. And then I just started following their vacancies and yeah, it was really in terms of timing, I, I just was about to finish my master when I saw this vacancy that was, yeah, perfect. So you applied <laughs> for a normal position uh, for a PhD, but I want to put this in some context because PhDs can be advertised in different ways. They can be directly from a university, um, but they can also be industrial PhDs where you work for a company, but you could also come with a stipendiate from your own research project and you look for a university. But you looked for a position that the supervisor the university put out there for you, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So the PhD was already funded, um, which is... Yeah. How much influence did you have on your topic then? Yeah, that is also something I, I asked during my PhD interview. Like, is everything already laid out? How I'm going to do things? Or do I have freedom in deciding? <clears throat> and of course, the, the overall aim of, of the, the project is, yeah, is fixed. We're going to create... Uh, well, we're not going to create, but we want to get a better understanding of uh, the process of fermentation. We want to try to create and probably will not get there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not product development that we're doing. It's, it's science, so it's about the understanding. Um, but how to get there, there's a lot of, of freedom in that because when you write a, a proposal, you don't know what is going to work and what is not going to work. And uh, yeah, so that, that freedom is very important also to... You have an idea for a method that you want to try, but if it's not working, you you need to look for other ideas. And who suggested those ideas? Was it you or was it your department to say like, oh, we have an idea that this way could work. You're going to work on this. Um, so the when the PhD was already funded, it got already approved uh, to, ha to have a certain methodology. Um, so that was already there. But... Yeah, as I said, there's if it's not going to work, then it's up to me to decide how we're going to do it. <laughs> what is the alternative method? And also within the method, there are still a lot of choices to make. So it's not yeah, set in stone 
how am I gonna do this? But it's more, yeah, a general idea and how, yeah, how to work that out. That is up to me. Do you know which criteria you were selected on? Because when you work with some methodology, you need to know what well, is this methodology. But you also probably need to work on a on a, a social level with the people you're working with. What do you think? What were the things that were most important? Um, to select you as a PhD candidate? I think really on the on the research part, um, I mean, I think they looked at the grades that you had in, in bachelor and master, what kind of skills, what kind of field. Uh, they looked at, do you have experience with plant-based fermentations? Do you know about the domain of microbiology? Um, yeah, some questions to, to test also uh, a bit the knowledge in, in that field. Um, writing is also important. Uh, do you have the writing skills that are that are important for a PhD? And how could you document all of this? Especially the writing might be quite hard. Yeah, I, I had one. I was lucky. I was had one publication for my bachelor uh, thesis, um, and I've also done some writing, uh, non-academic writing, so public writing. I, I published a, a little booklet together with some other students about org organic food. So it's like the truth and what is true about organic food. Um, yeah, I enjoy writing, so I could have some yeah, proof. And I know that you're still quite early in your PhD, but do you already have you already thought about whether you want to stay in academia or if you want to go to industry after you finished your PhD? Yeah, I've, I've thought about that question and I'm not really sure yet which which direction. I Currently, I don't have the ambition to become a professor. Um, but yeah, I could see myself doing a postdoc, for example. Um, yeah, I, I try to focus on, on what is now and I'm, I'm enjoying my, my PhD. And I think more towards the end, it will become clearer for me which direction I can take. It's great to hear that you enjoy your PhD. Is it as you imagined it? Um, yes and no. I think in terms of yeah, um, motivation for the topic and uh, yeah. I imagined it would be a sort of continuation of a master thesis project in the way that you're working, that you're working uh, independently on your own project. Um, and yes, that is the case, but also there's more more pressure because you need you need to publish, of course, and there's more responsibility because you have students to su supervise. Um, then, yeah. So, what's the biggest difference between being a motivated master student and being a motivated PhD student? Uh, the length of the project, I think, because half a year is very different than a three-year project. Becoming a marathon runner after being used to sprints. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a good uh, analogy. Um, and maybe some more project management, because as a master student, you just have one thing to focus on. Um, but with a PhD, you're also doing courses, you're supervising students, you want to go to conferences. You have to combine well, working in the lab, in my case, with uh, working behind the computer, um, That's and how do you learn all these extra skills? Uh, by experience, I think. <laughs> I mean, you can also Trial take courses in, in more skills-based, like project management courses. Um, 
and yeah, you try to find out what works well for you in terms of having a schedule. Um, that's a, something I also enjoy that it's more flexible, like you decide your own schedule. So to maybe people that consider doing a PhD in the future after listening to this great explanation from you, um, what would you say, when do you need to start planning to become a PhD? I don't think you need to plan from a very early age on. <laughs> um, but maybe in your master, uh, yeah, try to think if, if research is something, really something, if you're really, yeah, excited about science. Um, and, yeah, if you yeah. I don't know. What are the, <laughs> or I can help you with the next question there. Like, <laughs> what is the key quality or qualities that you need to bring with you to successfully get a PhD and hopefully finish a PhD? I think it's a curiosity. Um, you really need to be motivated about your topic and excited. Um, I think this drive is the most important thing. If you don't have that, it's going to be a very tough three years. Um, and, you know, skills, you can learn those. If you lack some specific skills, you can take courses or you can... Uh, yeah, you can study those, but the, the drive that, that needs to be there. Yes. Thank you very much for giving us these insights. Uh, I wish you that you continue with this great drive, this great enthusiasm that you're having, the curiosity you clearly have for this one. And we're looking forward to what's coming out in three years there. Yes, very much. Looking forward to tasting it, but also <laughs> seeing it. Yes, then I think we immediately continue because we still have a beautiful thing to do, what we call the lightning round. Oh, yeah. Um, for our Maybe. listeners that don't know this yet, we have 10 questions that we will rapidly Maybe. fire at Tessa um, to learn a little bit more about our guests here. Um, Maybe I just quickly start on this one. So, Tessa, something everybody should know about your topic Yes, well, that fermentation is a very exciting way to uh, improve our food and that our current uh, meat alternatives, they can get a lot better than that they are now. What advice would you give to your younger self at the beginning of your PhD? Uh, think about the end of the PhD <laughs> and uh, track back how much time you have and start writing uh, right away. What do you do to be productive? I try to minimize uh, all kind of distractions, like uh, mainly phone or um, social media. And uh, I try to get enough sleep. On the day I defend my PhD, I will be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst job you ever had? Uh, you never had a bad job. That's a luxury. That's nice. Yeah. I cannot think of any. I mean, I, of course, I had bad jobs, but uh, I had I worked at a, a coffee place, which was very exciting. But I had a boss that was uh, always comparing me with other people, like, "Oh, uh, you should be more like like that person." But every no, job can I, be worse if the work environment doesn't fit. Yeah. What is your dream job? Um, something with food innovation, where I can bring a lot of creativity and a lot of innovative ideas your exit plan if this career doesn't work out mm, i'm not sure i have an exit plan I, it's just gonna work out i will know it. i know it confident one thing that you're proud of 
mm, of pursuing uh, what I what I want. One thing that went catastrophically wrong. I don't know. <laughs> A book that you would recommend everyone to read? Hundred um, Years of Solitude by Marcus. So, Tessa, thank you very much for taking the time and the honesty to talk about all these great topics today. Um, Johanna, what did you learn today about starting a PhD? Well, I think it was very nice to hear that you don't need to know from the very beginning or like from, I don't know, age 10 that you want to become a PhD. P PhD. Difficult word. Ah, yes, thanks. To actually uh, get one at the end. And I also learned that it's very important to be curious or that that's one of the most important skills and that all the other skills you can kind of pick up along the way. But you should also have in mind that it's not only about research, but that especially time management and project management are also skills which bring you a long way in the PhD and which are very good to have, in fact. Um, yeah. What about you, Sebastian? Were you convinced about the alternative meat proteins? Well, to be completely honest, I will keep eating meat also in the future, I think. But I'm looking definitely forward to get better meat alternatives because they are a really important thing to bring down our CO2 production, animal welfare and everything. And I'm looking really much forward that we're going to have really nice alternatives that are not a downgrade, but maybe even an upgrade in the way they are nutritious. So thanks for giving us this hope. Thanks to you too. Good. Thanks to all our listeners. Thanks for taking the time to listen in. And we're looking forward to see you on the next episode. And of course, we're going to have some links in the show notes where you can find out more if you're interested in reading more about what Tessa is working on. And uh, yeah, we hear you soon, hopefully. Bye. This was the PhD pod, the UCUPS podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to be our next guest, write to us on ucups at ku.dk. And please like, follow, and subscribe to our channels. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The PhD pod is supported by the University of Copenhagen. Your hosts today have been Sebastian Sestrushny and Johanna Einsiedler. Production is by Penilla Jensen and Jennifer Musser, and editing by Simon Ulrich. That was probably stupid. We are not hearing anyone soon. But, uh, yeah, we need to figure out what we do there at the end. <laughs> like, Jens the fuzzy bit. <laughs> I think, like, at some point, Johan and I will just come in without guests and just, like, speak six endings in there. <laughs> we'll yeah.